Welcome to Music History Monday for February 28, 2022. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is John Alden Carpenter. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the birth on February 28, 1876, 146 years ago today, of the American composer and pianist John Alden Carpenter in Chicago, Illinois. He died there in the Windy City at the age of 75 on April 26, 1951. John Alden Carpenter is certainly not a musical household name here in 2022. But 75 years ago, Carpenter was among the best known and most respected living composers, musicians, he was an outstanding pianist, and musical philanthropists in the United States. His orchestral music was regularly conducted by the likes of Walter Damrosch, who conducted the New York Symphony Orchestra, Frederick Stock, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, Leopold Stokowski, Serge Kusevitsky, the Boston Symphony Orchestra, Fritz Reiner, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, Artur Rodzinski, the New York Philharmonic, Pierre Monteux, the San Francisco Symphony, Otto Klemperer, Bruno Walter, the New York Philharmonic, and Eugene Ormandy, the Philadelphia Orchestra. The list of great singers, musicians, and chamber groups that championed Carpenter's music is equally impressive. Carpenter was the only American composer ever to be commissioned by Serge Diaghilev, 1872-1929, and his Ballet Russe. The product of that commission was Carpenter's third and final ballet, Skyscrapers, a Ballet of Modern American Life of 1924, which will be the topic of tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post. But it's not just Carpenter's well-deserved fame in his lifetime that we're interested in, but precisely how he generated that fame. He did it by being among the first generation of American composers to break free of the anti-American, pro-German bias of his Ivy League music professors and by composing music that embraced both a modernist compositional impulse and American popular musical culture, particularly ragtime and jazz, well before George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue brought those homegrown idioms to the concert halls of America in 1924. In his eclecticism, his modernism, and Americanism, Carpenter's compositional impulse was an almost exact duplicate of that of his exact contemporary, Charles Ives, 1874 to 1954. In fact, the resemblances between Carpenter and Ives go far beyond the dates of their births and deaths and their music. They each grew up in a household with a musically gifted parent who was, for each of them, their singular influence. In Carpenter's case, it was his mother Elizabeth, born Green, 
who was a pianist, organist, and a Paris and London trained mezzo-soprano. In 1977, Elizabeth's granddaughter, Catherine Birmingham, wrote that Elizabeth, quote, was gifted with a superb mezzo-soprano voice and was trained to become a professional, unquote. In an interview conducted near the very end of his life, John Alden Carpenter told the music writer Madeline Goss that had his mother been born a generation later, she would have been a professional recitalist and or an opera singer. In Ives's case, it was his father, the town bandmaster, trumpet slash cornet player and composer, George Ives, 1845 to 1894. A, a further coincidence, Carpenter's father was named George as well. Both Carpenter and Ives were highly successful businessmen who composed in their off time and after they retired. They were both descended from old Republican Congregationalist, meaning Calvinist, church-going New England families. They both attended Ivy League schools, Carpenter, Harvard, Ives, Yale, where they studied with anti-American, pro-German, New England composers, Carpenter with John Knowles Payne and Ives with Horatio Parker. And while both Carpenter and Ives revered dead German composers, they believed that American music should go its own way. To that end, they incorporated all sorts of American music into their concert works, including patriotic anthems, Stephen Foster songs, John Philip Sousa marches, church hymns, ragtime, and in Carpenter's case, jazz. According to Carpenter biographer Howard Pollock, quote, Carpenter and Ives shared ideals related to turn-of-the-century progressivism. Both ridiculed gentility and materialism, took an optimistic and patriotic view of life, restlessly and constantly revised their music, generously supported experimental art, and perhaps above all, derived great inspiration from children." Unquote. Our Game Plan Today's Music History Monday post and tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post will be one of our occasional twofers, one large post split into two parts. Now please, for those of you non-Patreon members listening only to my Music History Monday podcasts, how can you stand to miss tomorrow's admittedly written conclusion to today's podcast? For all of $2 a month, you'd have access to the written versions of both Music History Monday and Dr. Bob Prescribes with all the many illustrations that the blog versions offer. That works out to 25 cents per post. Duh. The remainder of today's Music History Monday post will feature on the development of an American national compositional tradition and how and why a German bias was built into that tradition from the beginning. Tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post will initially focus on John Alden Carpenter's teacher at Harvard, the composer John Knowles Payne, 
as a card-carrying purveyor of that German bias before moving back to Carpenter, his ballet skyscraper, and the recommended disc, which features not just Carpenter's skyscraper, but music by Payne as well. The development of an American national musical tradition. The emergence of a distinctly American concert music tradition, outliers like Carpenter and Ives and Louis Moreau Gottschalk, 1829-1969 aside, is generally dated to the mid-1920s. That's when a critical mass of American composers, born around the turn of the 20th century, a generation after Carpenter and Ives, consistently began incorporating something of the diversity of the American experiment into their concert works. That was a full 150 years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence. We might fairly ask, why did it take so long? You know, it's a good question. The seemingly late incoming development of distinctly American concert music can be attributed to reasons economic, social, and political, reasons we will now itemize and explore. Reason number one for the slow development of an American concert music tradition, the economics of American life. From pretty much the beginning, the American dream was about economic opportunity, about a wide open continent where, presumably, hard work and the meritocracy made the person and not the luck of their birth. To that end, the energies of post-revolutionary America were focused on economic development and the expanding frontier. Musicologist H. Wiley Hitchcock writes, quote, dominating the entire 19th century American social and cultural situation was the moving frontier, constantly being pushed westward. The newly established cities and towns of the expanding frontier were resentful of culture down east. The men, only one step removed from pioneering, viewed any time spent on non-productive art as wasteful. Land and money needed cultivation, not their sensibilities. Music, the most intangible and useless of the arts, had their special disdain. Leave music to the women or to the immigrant professors. Thus crystallized an American view of fine art music as essentially the province of females or foreigners or effeminates a view still common in the 20th century." Unquote. Sadly, Professor Hitchcock speaks the truth. The fine arts, particularly fine art music, have never defined American culture to the degree that they have European and Asian cultures. Rather, American culture has been, from its beginning, defined by economic issues. In an environment where machismo and manhood and success were measured by financial advancement and security, artists in general and professional composers in particular ranked rather low 
on the social scale. Oh, in this how we'd love to believe that things have changed. Reason number two for the slow development of an American musical tradition. Musical traditions develop slowly. In his book, The New Music, 1900 to 1960, the great American composer Aaron Copland asserts, quote, music has always been the last of the arts to flower in any country. In its folk form, there is nothing more natural, but in its cultivated form, it seems to need more coddling than any of its sister arts. Certainly, our own musical history was slow in getting underway. One reason for that may be found in the elaborate superstructure that is needed before so-called art music can develop properly. You can't have maturity in music until you have produced all the mechanical impedimenta of the musical world. Orchestras, opera houses, piano manufacturers, music teachers, concert managers, and so forth." Unquote. Yeah, in America, there was no built-in patron class, no work-challenged hereditary aristocracy to finance all of this mechanical impedimenta and to sponsor and promote concert music. Instead, the musical infrastructure had to develop from the ground up, and that requires time, money, and a community of people with the desire to make it happen. For this, Americans must thank the Germans. The American musical infrastructure began to develop in the mid-19th century as a result of the influx of German immigrants to the United States, which was a good news and bad news situation. First, the good news. Massive crop failures and, at the same time, the revolutions of 1848 and 1849 brought large numbers of middle-class German immigrants to the United States. These immigrants played the key role in creating the institutional foundations necessary for cultivating concert music in America. For example, music conservatories were founded on the German model Peabody in Baltimore in 1857, Oberlin in Ohio in 1865, the New England Conservatory in Boston in 1867, and the Cincinnati Conservatory in 1867, to name just the earliest. Concert halls were built, the Academy of Music in Philadelphia in 1857, Cincinnati's Music Hall in 1878, the Auditorium in Chicago, in 1889, and Carnegie Hall in New York City in 1891. Symphony societies were founded on the German model. The New York Philharmonic Society in 1842, the Boston Symphony Orchestra in 1881, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra in 1891, and the Philadelphia Orchestra in 1900. An American musical infrastructure, Copland's mechanical impedimenta, was created by German immigrants or on German models during the second half of the 19th century. This was, by any measure, good news. But hand in hand 
with this newly minted musical infrastructure was the bad news. A German bias was built into the American musical establishment from its beginning. Those very few American-born composers who did exist in the mid-19th century didn't have a snowball's chance in the Mojave of getting their music performed by a presumably American orchestra. For example, in January of 1854, the Philadelphia-born composer William Henry Fry, 1813 to 1864, who was the first person in the United States to compose for an orchestra, complained bitterly, quote, the Philharmonic Society of New York, consecrated to German music, is an incubus on art, never having asked for or performed a single American composition during the 11 years of its existence. The Brooklyn, New York-born composer George Frederick Bristow, 1825 to 1898, echoed these sentiments when he wrote in the journal Musical World on March 4, 1854, that, quote, What is the purpose of the New York Philharmonic Society in this country? Is it to play exclusively the works of German masters, especially if they be dead? Or is it to stimulate original art on the spot? From the commencement, there has been on the part of the Philharmonic Society a conspiracy against the art of a country to which they have come for a living. If all their artistic affections are unalterably German, let them go back to Germany." Unquote. Nowhere was the late 19th, early 20th century German musical bias felt more powerfully than in American academia. It wasn't until the 1870s that music came to be considered as being a worthy course of study at the great American universities of the time. The first academic professor of music at any American university was John Knowles Payne, 1839 to 1906, who was appointed the first professor of music at Harvard in 1874. Payne was John Alden Carpenter's principal music teacher at Harvard between 1894 and 1898. We'll spend some quality time with Herr Professor Payne in tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post. The New England Classicists, or the New England Academicians, or the Boston Six, or the Second New England School. John Knowles Payne again, 1839 to 1906, is the eldest of that loose amalgam of composers referred to variously as the New England Classicists, or the New England Academicians, or the Second New England School, or the Boston Six. There was Payne himself, Arthur Foote, 1853 to 1937, George Chadwick, 1854 to 1931, Edward McDowell, 1861 to 1908, Horatio Parker, 1863 to 1919, and Amy Beach, 1867 to 1944. What linked these six composers 
was a shared geographical, educational, and cultural background. They were all white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Excepting McDowell, who was born in New York, they were otherwise all born in New England. They were all profoundly influenced by and dedicated to German music, from that of Johann Sebastian Bach, 1685 to 1750, and Beethoven, 1770 to 1827, through the German Romantics, Karl Maria von Weber, Robert Schumann, Johannes Brahms, and Richard Wagner. They all studied with Germans in Germany or in the United States, or with German-trained musicians. They were all terrific musical snobs who were frankly a bit embarrassed by what they considered their Native American musical culture. Most of the New England school composers were, quote, pioneers of academic education, unquote, in the United States, along with Payne at Harvard and Parker at Yale Edward McDowell taught at Columbia University, while George Whitefield Chadwick was director of the New England Conservatory. The great majority of their students, and their students' students, continued to perpetrate the German bias of these New England composers, and it remained a pervasive, even all-encompassing bias through the 20th century in the music departments of many American universities. I studied at Princeton from 1972 to 1976. With the exception of Igor Stravinsky, I do not recall encountering a single non-Austrian or non-German composer during the course of my undergraduate music education. No Vivaldi or Verdi, no Tchaikovsky or Mussorgsky, no Ravel or Debussy or Messiaen, no Liszt or Rachmaninoff, no Prokofiev or Bartok. Okay, how stupid was that? It was, then, the rare 19th century American-born composer who rejected their mentor's teaching and instead went their own radical way. Charles Ives was one such composer. John Alden Carpenter was another. When we return in tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post, it will be with a recommended recording that features music by both John Alden Carpenter and his teacher, John Knowles Payne. Until then, thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.